Good afternoon, this is Resonance 104.4 FM and this is Hooting Yard on the Air. My name is Frank Key and I'm going to read to you for half an hour, prose, and um, I'm going to begin with a piece called Song of the Grunty Man. Apparently, the Grunty Man, that figure of childhood nightmares, has a song. It begins, I grunt at the sun, I grunt at the moon, my grunts do not follow a tune. I grunt at the stars, I grunt at the sky, my grunting makes household pets die. One day in March 1967, the grunty man went into a recording studio. He was accompanied by a hand-picked gaggle of musicians who later became some of the biggest names in prog rock, including future members of Yes, Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Spooky Tooth. Also present was the youthful Gordon Sumner, now known to the world as Stig, who was drafted in for his ability to whine in a high-pitched caterwaul. That was Stig caterwauling, I think. Um, I say they were hand-picked, but in fact the grunty man arranged for each muso to be plucked from their mundane doldrums by the claw of Gak. It was an experience none of them ever forgot. Eschewing the use of a producer or sound engineer, the grunty man barred and bolted the studio doors and whirled about in a grunting frenzy until all the musicians were suitably cowed. It would be unkind to state which of the Emerson, Lake and Palmer trio was so frightened that he hid in a cupboard and piddled in his loon pants until coaxed out with the promise of Garibaldi biscuits. 10,000 years old and covered in sores, the grunty man had recently started to use a guide dog. This dog, Alan, was some kind of beagle and was hopelessly inadequate for its task. It was blind itself, in one eye, suffered from muscle spasms and liver failure and harboured a doggy desire to take part in the space programme rather than have to drag around with the grunty man. It spent most of the recording session curled up inside Carl Palmer's bass drum, dreaming of the stars. The grunty man decided to call his one-off band Rudiman's Rudiments after the Latin primer used by generations of schoolchildren. With such a name, he thought, he would not be dismissed merely as a grotesque grunting ogre from the Earth's primeval past, but as a somewhat more sophisticated being. Having a hit record would give him even more charisma and his long-cherished desire to win social acceptance would be fulfilled. Perhaps he wanted too much. Certainly the auspices were not good, as the band huddled in a corner of the studio quaking with terror, Alan snoozed and no one bothered to locate the light switches. When little Sumner whimpered that they would need at least some light to work by, the grunty man unleashed great bellows of his sulphurous phosphorescent breath. The studio was lit by a dim green mist which hung in the air and the band stumbled reluctant, reluctantly to their positions. They ran through the music a few times, but never to the grunty man's satisfaction. Less Herman's Hermits! More Scriabin, he shouted, 
and as they could not understand his grunts, he clawed the words onto the walls with his talons. But none of the band, not even the bombastically inclined future Emerson, Lake and Palmer, were familiar with the works of the neurasthenic and puny Russian composer Alexander Skriabin with his tiny hands, and they stuck to a toothsome sort of pop-pap. The grunty man kept bellowing to maintain the phosphorescent light levels. Alan, the guide dog, woke up briefly and savaged Carl Palmer's piddle-stained loon pants. And then a janitor arrived. Old Ted Cargpan's intention was to throw the intruders out of the studio. But in the event, he saved the situation. Completely calm in the face of the hideous grunty man and contemptuous of the young musicians, he at once sized up the scene, set the tapes running and put the whole lot of them through their paces. Even the grunty man deferred to the janitor, retreating to a spot up in the rafters and allowing the little Sumner boy to take on the lead vocal while Alan the guide dog, refreshed after his nap, howled backing. The instrumentalists too seemed energised by the crusty old janitor's presence Greg Lake in particular demonstrating the sort of skills that would in a few years' time make brain salad surgery such a millstone. Sorry, I meant to say milestone. The track finished, old Ted Cargpan sent the musicians packing and brought the grunty man down from his perch near the ceiling to record the B-side, a duet with Alan the guide dog. The grunty man grunted, Alan slobbered, and the janitor moulded their din into a majestic three-minute miniature rock opera, subsequently plagiarised by everybody from Ultravox to swan-eating Peter Maxwell Davis. So, whatever happened to the recordings? Some say that the adult Gordon Sumner, wealthy beyond the dreams of avarice, but still, as a middle-aged man, rather foolishly still calling himself Stig, opposed any reissue of the disc and even had the master tapes destroyed. Another rumour has it that Alan the Guide Dog somehow managed, in 1977, to get himself blasted towards Saturn on a space rocket and took the tapes with him. The grunty man himself remains silent on the subject, merely grunting horribly in his cave or next to his pond, haunting the nightmares of tiny children, tuneless once more and resigned to his immortal fate. Before going on to the next piece, um, it's always worth reading the newspapers for um, to find interesting names. Last summer, I think it was last summer, um, I was enchanted by the name of a, a little girl who fell off a cliff and survived, whose name was Demi Lee Tweddle, which is a superb name. And I read in the paper today that there are two um, two parents, Mr. and Mrs. Hain, 
um, who've been jailed for four months, I think, or maybe four weeks, because um, their daughter never goes to school, so she's a persistent truant. So Mr and Mrs Hayne have made no attempt to get her to go to school. Now, Mr and Mrs Hayne's daughter is called Schlein, S-H-L-A-I-N-E, and the story also mentions that she has a brother called Kane. Interesting. Kane Hayne and Schlein Hayne. Anyway, um, this piece is called Days O Boot Polish. It was in the Days O Boot Polish that I was banished from the palace. I had done nothing wrong, but one Thursday morning they came for me in my cubicle and tore the paperwork from my elegant hands and told me that I was to be banished. I was led to a cupboard where I was told to deposit my pencils and my hats and then to another cupboard where there were many, many shelves stacked oh so high with packets of nuts. They told me I could take six packets, two each of peanuts and hazelnuts, one of pine nuts and one of Brazil nuts. I was to cram them into my pockets and pat the flaps down. It was made very clear to me that my pockets would be rummaged through as I stepped outside the palace to begin my banishment, and that if I had more than six packets of nuts about my person, banishment from the palace would be the least of my worries. It was not entirely clear to me what this meant, but it was not meant to be clear to me. It was intended that I be stricken with terror and have my imagination run riot at the prospect of some gruesome fate. In truth, I didn't get myself into a little flap, for I have always been law-abiding, and I had no intention of taking more than my allotment of nuts. I've twice mentioned flaps, material flaps and emotional flaps, and before I'm through, I may refer to other flaps. We shall see. Once I had packed my pockets with my six packets of nuts and patted down the flaps, they told me to come out of the cupboard, and as soon as I was in the corridor, they slammed the cupboard door shut with such unnecessary violence that I jumped into the air for a second. The ceiling was high enough that I did not crack my head on it. I understood why they had instructed me to pat down my pocket flaps, because had I not done so, one or more of the packets of nuts may have fallen from my pockets during my inadvertent little jump. I got the impression, waiting for their next move, that they had expected me to jump. Around the corner of the corridor, one of them now appeared wheeling a gurney, they told me to clamber onto it and to lie down on my back, and then they strapped me to it with a series of buckled woollen belts. It was explained to me that this was all part of the standard banishment procedure and that I should read nothing sinister into it, so I didn't. I felt quite relaxed, staring at the grimy yellow ceiling of the corridor as I was wheeled along. I mused about the day's boot polish and wondered if they were coming to an end. It was hard to tell. We arrived at a junction and turned into another corridor. This one had a ceiling that was also yellow, but much less grimy. After a while, my gurney juddered to a stop. I was unbuckled and they told me to get off it and stand up. I did as I was told and saw that I was in part of the palace that I had never seen before, 
but this did not surprise me, for I always knew that I was kept to only certain areas of what must have been a tremendously large building. Now I was going to be thrown out of it altogether, with six packets of nuts to see me on my way. I did find this all very curious, but they showed no sign of giving me any explanation, so I kept my mouth shut. There was a cold rush of air to my left, and I looked around and saw that a sliding door had swooshed open, and beyond it was open air, a field, some shriveled vegetation, distant cows, and a magnificent blue sky. I had not seen the like since before the day's boot polish, and for the first time since they ejected me from my cubicle, I spoke. Gosh, I said. One of them whacked me on the windpipe with a tally stick and I crumpled to the floor. My patted down pocket flaps kept my six packets of nuts safe from spillage. It took me some while to get my breath back and then they lifted me to my feet. I heard an ungodly beeping noise. This was coming from a wall panel which formed part of the stupendously complicated palace communication system installed at the very beginnings of the day's boot polish when inventions were still welcomed. I knew it ran on electricity and pneumatics, but beyond that its workings were a mystery to me. The beeping turned out to be a signal confirming my banishment. They turned out my pockets, and as soon as they were satisfied that I was carrying no more than six packets of nuts, I was shoved in the small of the back, out into the field, and the sliding door swooshed shut behind me. I walked away from the palace in more or less a straight line for about an hour. Then the sky was filled suddenly with dozens of swordfish jet planes with military markings. Dozens of planes, skitting and swooping, making a terrible din. I clapped my elegant hands over my equally elegant ears to stifle the racket without much success. While I was standing there being a bit weedy, one of the planes came in to land about 50 cements away and disgorged a troop of howler monkeys who immediately came charging towards me, howling and howling. They grabbed my arms and legs, lifted me off my feet, bundled me into a tarpaulin and carried me off towards the plane. I noticed a solitary starling in the blue sky. Once inside the plane, which took off again as soon as I had been ferried aboard, I was tossed from the tarpaulin onto a surprisingly comfortable bunk and injected with a serum. This gave me a splitting headache, but also caused me to begin babbling in urgent and breathless gulping sobs everything I knew about the palace and the Dezo boot polish. I couldn't stop myself, even when one of the howler monkeys passed me a tumbler of refreshing milkshake. I ended up spitting most of it onto the floor, so desperate was I to tell everything I could dredge up from the deepest nooks of my brain. It was all quite involuntary. None of the howler monkeys was taking notes. In fact, they did not seem particularly interested in what I had to tell. I prattled on for at least a day, if not more, before falling back on the bunk completely spent. They gave me some more milkshake, and this time I drained my tumbler with lip-smacking relish. Then I fell asleep. That was last week. 
This week, the howler monkeys have asked me to help them to make a scale model of the palace out of corrugated cardboard. I will give them what help I can. I've already given them the six packets of nuts that were the tokens of my banishment. The days o' boot polish are over now, at long last, and I for one will not miss them. I have enough on my plate, ushering in the days o' cellophane to a colony of a hundred thousand howler monkeys, learning to howl just like them, but perhaps with a touch more elegance. I'm tempted to um, dedicate that last piece to Shlaine Hain, but um, maybe she should go to school first. Anyway, last week um, I made passing mention in a, in a piece of Popsy the Pig, and I've been asked to point out that said pig is a fictional pig rather than a real, living, breathing pig of flesh and blood. One might think this was obvious, not so as far as serial Hooting Yard correspondent Dr Ruth Pastry is concerned. She wrote to the Hooting Yard website um, as follows. O oh, key, she wrote in yet another frantically typed missive from wherever it is she lives. I've been concerned for some time that you do not make plain what is fact and what is fiction. We all know that educational standards are falling apart, that tinies today are sent to community education hubs rather than to schools, and that they learn nothing because the blinkered nitwits who oversee things are far too busy rolling out and embedding robust initiatives and driving forward 360-degree change interfaces under the direction of a faith-based challenge champion. These are the kinds of people, remember, who see an arrow and call it a graphic directional pointing emblem. Regrettable though it is, you need to bear in mind that your future readership will need explicit guidance to distinguish a pretend pig from a real one. To apprehend the full import of your words, readers have to be absolutely clear what you're talking about. It goes without saying that they need to have confidence that you know what you're talking about in the first place. It does sometimes seem to me that you have about as much idea about real pigs as you do about birds. In future, I suggest that you use some kind of colour coding system. Plain black text for facts, red italics for things you have made up, and bold green type for when you're wittering on about the many, many subjects of which you are profoundly ignorant. That should sort the wheat from the chaff, and I suspect there'll be a large amount of chaff. Yours in Christ... Ruth Pastry. Entertaining though such rants may be, I have no intention of taking Dr Pastry's advice. Unlike her, I respect my readers' and listeners' intelligence, 
and I think it unlikely that anyone would confuse the fictional Popsy with a Y, the pig, and the real Popsy with an I and an E, the pig. The latter pig was, of course, instied in the grounds of the pneumatic power tower on the other side of the fields, beyond the big unexplained building on the hill, where it was regularly visited by Dobson, who fed it with an enticing variety of fallen fruits and items of confectionery. Though he pretended a convincing gruffness, Dobson had a soft spot for Popsy the pig, who could reduce him to tears by, for example, grunting or wallowing in a particular patch of mud. In the autumn of 1955, Dobson trudged across the fields to the pigsty twice a day, his pockets filled with pig treats for Popsy. It was on one such trudge, a dawn one, as winter began to bite, that the out-of-print pamphleteer was accosted by the local inspector of pig, squirrel and goat food with his pointy cap and gleaming golden blazer buttons. My name is Piccolo and my mind is a chaos, said this man, pointing a futuristic ray gun at Dobson's head. And I am the local inspector of pig, squirrel and goat food. My word is law in these parts. Empty your pockets. Dobson had been threatened with ray guns before, but never at dawn in the middle of a field, so reluctantly he did as he was bid, tossing fallen fruits and items of confectionery onto the ground. A partly gnawed toffee apple struck the boot of the inspector and rolled into a ditch. Get into the ditch and retrieve that partly gnawed toffee apple! shouted the inspector, waving his ray gun in a haphazard way that betrayed his unfamiliarity with it. Dobson ducked and shimmied and swiftly disarmed him, dislodging his pointy cap and pushed him into the ditch. My ankle is sprained, whined the inspector. Dobson eyed him with contempt and picked up the fallen fruits and items of confectionery one by one. Listen to me, inspector of pig, squirrel and goat food, or whoever you are, said Dobson. I am going to continue trudging across the field until I reach the pigsty. Then I will feed these fallen fruits and items of confectionery to the pig known throughout this land as Popsy the pig. That is, Popsy with an I and an E, a real pig of flesh and blood and bone and muscle, no mere fictional pretend pig of someone's fancy. Fictional pigs need no feeding, Inspector, as your superiors must have made plain to you when they handed you a requisition slip for that futuristic ray gun and sent you here. While I am gone, eat of that partly gnawed toffee apple and fill in your forms. When I return, I will fashion a makeshift stretcher out of branches and leaves and I will drag you across the fields to my home, and I will install you on the sofa in the sitting room, and I will feed you with more toffee apples and with soup until your sprained ankle is sprained no more, and then you may go on your way, armed once more with your ray gun, with your pointy cap set straight upon your head, and your pockets stuffed with certain of my pamphlets which you are to bring to the attention of your superiors, works in which I have addressed in enormous detail the topic of the proper feeding of not only pigs and squirrels and goats, but also cows and horses and stoats and crows and weasels and cormorants and guillemots and badgers, 
both real and fictional. The overwhelming genius of my recommendations has been ignored until now, and this has caused me anguish that you can barely imagine from your position sprawled in a ditch with a sprained ankle and only a partly gnawed toffee apple for sustenance. But you will do me this service, and by doing so your name will live forever in the hearts of those who, from St Francis of Assisi onwards, have striven to strengthen the links that bind us to the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and those creatures that creep upon their bellies and those that slither and wriggle in the muck, the real ones and those that are fictional, like Popsy the pig when Popsy is spelled with a Y. It is you who will be remembered, Inspector, not me, for I am but a mere out-of-print pamphleteer, I have no pointy cap, as you do, nor a blazer with gleaming golden buttons, nor do I covet them. Mark my words, and mark them well, and now I must trudge onwards to the pigsty. Alas, when Dobson returned to the ditch, the inspector of pig, squirrel and goat food had scarpered. He had only ever been a phantom from another world and another time, and as Dobson threw the futuristic ray gun into a nearby waste chute, he realised with a mixture of despair and disgust that his words had been wasted, and that when he got home, as the bleak winter sun rose higher in the sky, he would find those pamphlets which addressed in enormous detail the proper feeding of pigs and squirrels and goats and cows and horses and stoats and crows and weasels and cormorants and guillemots and badgers, both real and fictional, he would find them still lying unread in the drawer of his writing desk, and he had no one to give them to, no one to carry them away, far away, to distant buildings in distant lands where important people made important decisions about the feeding of Popsy the pig and all the other creatures upon this planet that Carl Sagan called a pale blue dot. couple of minutes left in this week's show and I thought um, as I often do I'd end the show with some quotations from other writers. For example Robert Lind who wrote The Pleasures of Ignorance and um, one of the things that Robert Lind wrote was this Who alive for instance knows all the moles of Sussex? I confess I got my first sight of one a few days ago, and though I had seen dead moles hanging from trees and had read descriptions of moles, the living creature was as unexpected as if one had come on it, silent, upon a peak in Darien. I'm trying to work out why Robert Lind was so familiar with the sight of dead moles hanging from trees, but it's probably best not to ask. Um, here's a thought. This is... Um, from John L. Huelshoff's Reading Made Easy for Foreigners. Um, I think this, uh, here's a thought for you to ponder in the week ahead. 
He who begins with crutches will generally end with crutches. The world is full of human lobsters. And finally, um, J.D. Beresford from 19 Impressions. As I searched feebly among the unmaterial transparencies that were growing more and more evanescent, I saw the symbol of the little shabby figure from the road staring in at the window. Amid a turmoil of strange gyrations, I caught a sight of him in that zinc box, huddled knees to chin like a prehistoric corpse. There was yet enough water left to cover him. Afterwards, I floated for unrealised years in immensity. It's just the way it goes, isn't it? Anyway, um, this has been Hooting Yard on the Air. My name is Frank Key. And remember, he who begins with crutches will generally end with crutches. The world is full of human lobsters. And I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Mm.